Welcome back to Talk Evidence, the BMJ podcast where we talk about how evidence is created and used in medicine. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and as always, I'm joined in the studio by our two favourite EBM nerds, Helen and Carl. Helen, can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Helen McDonald, the BMJ's UK research editor. Hi, I'm Carl Hennigan. I'm Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine and Director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford. That's a lot of evidence-based medicine. It is. And you're a GP as well. I am. And Helen, you're a GP as well. Yes, in early retirement. (laughs) (laughs) You're too too young to retire yet. We have a shortage, national crisis (laughs) in GPs. Please come back. Uh, We'll have to see the evidence for that later. Before we get into the bits that you know and love, and Carl, by the way, I heard this week that people really enjoy your regular rant. Makes <laughs> them screaming into a pillow feel a little bit better. I have to say this week I've got a significant number of rants, actually. <laughs> so brace yourself, everyone. We are a bit everyone. ranty this week, I think. Yeah, I think we will be. Um, uh, my ambition is to get uh, Helen to shout on air <laughs> in this podcast. Okay. <laughs> um, before we get into that, though, each week we ask our listeners to get in touch with us and let us know what they think of the podcast. And if you want to do that, by the way, details are on bmj.com slash podcasts. But I've had a voicemail asking me about one of our segments a little while ago, which was about a rapid recommendation for sol- shoulder surgery. So, Helen, uh, this is probably one for you to... Um, answer so keep your ears peeled. Hello my name is Christian Verinder I am a GP but I also work in musculoskeletal medicine and in musculoskeletal commissioning. I listen to a lot of the BMJ podcasts and in in particular have been enjoying your talk evidence series recently and so I was listening with interest when you were discussing shoulder surgery in your recent podcast uh, with regards to subacromial decompression following the publication of the BMJ rapid recommendation. Uh, This particular publication gave a a strong recommendation not to perform subacromial decompression and I think is now leaving clinicians maybe scratching their heads wondering what we should be doing with these patients. I know I certainly am and I think it'll take some time for NICE to uh, catch up. I assume the BMJ is aware of the impact and adoption of their rapid recommendations and indeed the powerful accompanying infographics both on clinical practice but also on NHS commissioning practices. And so my question is this, when of advising what not to do, should the BMJ assume a duty of responsibility to suggest alternative clinical pathways advising what to do in addition to what not to do. So Helen, there, each week we do a a thing to stop, but do we think about uh, what people should do instead of just stopping? Um, And is it that our job to, uh, to recommend that? Well, I think Christian's point is really interesting um, and it's it's really gratifying to hear as the, as the kind of series um, developer of rapid recommendations that they're being used and valued and um, that commissioners are thinking about what to do with them. Um, 
I think, as with any guideline, you have to draw some scope around it. And the way that we've conceived rapid recommendations is particularly to respond to some new evidence that that has come out. And in this case, it was about surgery. And so the answer, to some extent, was about surgery. Um, but myself and the team working on the on the guideline um, were aware that clinicians would ask so what do you do instead so there is a section in the in the long version of the paper that that does address that and say what the other alternatives might be but i think it's fair to say that there's substantial uncertainty around what uh, the non-operative interventions are um i think it's interesting to wonder um should um should should we have sort of done a review of um all treatments for this problem but um, as I say that that was a bit beyond the scope of, of what we did this time. Just something that I've wondered about you know we, we focus so much attention on one element of a, of a conditional treatment or whatever that we and we just sort of ignore what's going on around us so it's, maybe that's that's sort of skewing that a little bit but as you say practically it's impossible for us in a single article to cover a kind Look, of I love this point, uh, not least because he actually likes this show, which I, I, I do <laughs> question some issues there about his uh, impartiality <laughs> and mental status, but hey, let's not go there. Look, um, it's not often, I hope, I will actually be a patient representative. Uh, when this came out, I have had painful arc syndrome. It was a nuisance. I had it, and after one year, it's getting better and I feel better, and I'm glad about this evidence guide me down that path. But I do think it is an important message that is saying we've got too many areas of so much research going on. Where do you go which helps you win practice because you've still got a GP to do something? And I remember is part of the advice on clinical knowledge summaries is exercise and physiotherapy. The question first is, what's the evidence? And also, what are the potential harms? Because if the harms are not that bad then actually why not try the the physiotherapy and then I had a process of where do I go to do what type of exercises mm. and that's another process then what should I actually do and there's a huge problem with the description of interventions so I think it would really be helpful to have a box you could do a rapid overview just saying the other systematic reviews show here's where the alternatives are and some potential links when it's a non-drug intervention of the things like the physiotherapy. Mm. And as you said, this is triggered by kind of external research, usually that is bundled up then into a systematic review and things. And I suppose it's about that research landscape as well and, and making sure that trials or whatever else that are done are actually affecting things that patients really care about and are designed to, to answer questions that practice really needs yeah, to know. And I suppose for some situations, there just aren't easy answers. Um, and I think it's clear that for most people, surgery isn't something that's going to bring them benefit and potentially it might bring them harm and it's very costly. So I suppose it's weighing up whether overall then you do some other treatment option or you just have to Well, hold I feel the like we're talking to a politician here because you're not <laughs> nailing down the answer of yes at the BMJ, we're going to have a box which is the alternative when we clearly say no. Well, well we did have a box on the alternatives. With the links to the videos and... I'm nearly getting you. No, I don't have I don't have links to the videos. But I think that's the bit where he's saying yeah. as a, I think as I think it's just a very interesting important point that is in making it helpful for clinicians, the BMJ could go a little bit further 
insert saying, and here's the alternatives, and X, Y, Z. And I think that would be really relevant for clinicians. All right. Point taken. (laughs) I'll give it a go. (laughs) We've just put out another strong recommendation not to do something. Okay. (laughs) Well, yeah, we'll see. So Christian Christian can uh, (laughs) write me another message this week um, about, about the latest one. Yeah, yeah, this is a, an interesting one. And uh, as you say, it's something we recommend uh, stopped. And I didn't realise that this topic, I'm talking about it as if we're, we're sort of teasing it here, subclinical hypothyroidism. I didn't realise that the treatment for that, um, levothyroxine, was the most prescribed drug in the US and Canada and third in the UK. That was such like a huge issue. I know, I didn't know that when we started this and I found it... I. I I thought it would be common, but I had no idea that it would be it would be that common. And uh, this is a very strong recommendation uh, to stop treatment for subclinical. Yeah, do you want me to tell you about it? Please do. So, this um, this particular recommendation is is responding to relatively recent trial evidence um, suggesting that um, uh, thyroxine is is not helpful uh, to people with subclinical hypothyroidism. And the um, authors of that trial had then been involved doing a systematic review which had had mirrored that finding and suggested that it really wasn't working. Um, And they contacted um, the Rapid Recommendations team and said, would you be interested in looking at this question? So this guidance is really about people at the beginning of their um, journey of having a subclinical hypothyroidism label um, and the panel were pretty confident that this this includes people um, who are asymptomatic who might have been diagnosed after screening perhaps for for another condition um, and patients who have non-specific symptoms which aren't too severe it might not apply to people who are very symptomatic And there is some question about whether it would apply to extremely young people. Um, So people under 30, the vast majority of people who have this condition are um, older, over 65. Um, And it doesn't apply to people who are trying to get pregnant or people who have a very elevated um, thyroid stimulating hormone TSH of above 20. What this um, guideline recommends is strongly against thyroid hormone therapy for people with some clinical hypothyroidism. What do you mean by strong evidence? It's interesting. So there's a strong recommendation. And in this case, that strong recommendation is driven by the fact that there is high quality evidence that the treatment doesn't work. And in consulting with the patient partners involved in this project and and looking at, at what people in this situation may value and prefer... That is consistent with patients' view that they don't want to take this drug, um, which doesn't really seem to be working for most people. So we're not expecting that a lot of people, based on looking at this evidence, would think, oh, I'll give it a go nonetheless. And that was really because um, it didn't make any important difference um, to the outcomes that mattered to patients. Well, the person that would be best to answer that might be uh, the man who the um, trial and the systematic review. Helen, do you think you could talk to him? Sure. Hello, I'm uh, Nicolas Rosandi from Switzerland. I'm a professor of primary care and internal medicine here at the University of Bern. 
in fact, Arnold, we look at the, in our collaboration at a lot of potential risk of this subclinical hypothyroidism, cardiovascular risk, but also uh, fracture risk. Uh, we look at depression. Uh, we look at uh, symptoms. And on all these findings, it was not so clear if all these people have really an increased risk of these problems. And therefore, uh, we decided in the trial to address all the potential outcomes that might, uh, all the potential symptoms or outcomes that might benefit from a treatment. Uh, surprisingly, we, we we didn't find any benefit of this uh, treatment uh, on a lot of outcomes, on the symptom, on the tiredness, which is a common reason to prescribe uh, saroxine in people with subclinical hypothyroidism, but also on weight, blood pressure. In fact, all cognition, also muscular function, so all the outcomes we studied, we always hoped that we would find a treatment that improves the health of the patient. Uh, mm. But on the other hand, we, we knew in advance that the evidence was not very strong, so that negative trial was also possible. Yeah. It's also the reason why it was funded by the AU and not by a by the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, we found a lot of skepticism by our colleagues, uh, mainly from endocrinology or specializing mm. thyroid dysfunction. And so we decided to look at the full evidence doing a systematic review also to see if perhaps younger people would benefit uh, from this therapy. But the systematic review uh, found also that pulling all the available evidence uh, we didn't find any any groups that clearly benefit from this treatment. I think what we know in uh, it's something where uh, rapid recommendations are great that between new evidence and change in the guidelines, it can take uh, five to ten years. Uh, it's very difficult to convince people. It's not very common that guidelines change, particularly when it is perhaps about doing less than doing more, where sometimes the guidelines change quickly. Um, and it's why uh, we, I contacted uh, some colleagues doing the rapid recommendation uh, with you and uh, to see if we could address it in, in a quick way to change the guidelines based on the new evidence. So I, I found very interesting to get also the opinion on patients. Uh, perhaps for this topic, it was not the easiest to convince a patient that they didn't get any benefit of treatment when they were treated by this drug for a long time. Usually when you begin thyroxine, you get it for your life and mm. you think you, you do better under it. And uh, I remember at the call, we had to take quite some time to explain to them that the benefit between the treated group and the group under placebo was exactly the same. And even if they feel well done treatment, there was no clear benefit for them for taking this drug for, for a long time. I think it's very interesting. It's almost like we spent 20 years using evidence to put people on treatment. And now we're starting to look at that evidence in detail and go, well, it never mentioned in the first place you should go on treatment. This is, and I suspect, quite a significant portion of people are in this category with subclinical hypothyroidism who are on treatment. And I guess this is about starting treatment. There's a slight problem if you're on treatment in yes, terms of what so you do here. I think 
for people who are already taking treatment, um, this is a conversation to go and have um, with, with your clinician. Um, the evidence wasn't as well directed um, to people who are already on uh, hormone treatment. I guess it, it comes down to a degree of pragmatism. There may be people who are taking the treatment who haven't perhaps found that it's been useful to them, it's made them feel any better, who might look at this evidence and think, I'd like to give it a go stopping the treatment and see what happens. There might be other people who did have some degree of symptoms who mm. felt that their symptoms were improved by thyroxine and they might prefer to stay on it. I think it will be a personal choice for those people. But I think for people right at the beginning of the process, this gives clinicians and patients, I think, greater empowerment to say, certainly the first thing you should be reaching for is not treatment. You should, you should be leaving things be. So I'm going to even rail back from that and say the first thing you shouldn't be reaching for is a test. Because, That's very interesting, isn't because, it? Because um, last year we did a piece in BMJ with a PhD student of mine who's gone on to work with, in Stanford, Jack O'Sullivan, who did a piece called Temporal Trends in Use of Tests in UK Primary Care. And what he showed over a 15-year period is that the number of tests per 10,000 people per year went from 14,869 to 49,267. So that's about five tests per person on average. So now... You've mentioned about, I was surprised about the thyroid being the top three and top one in America, but I shouldn't be actually, because if you look at the tests, it is, I could do this as a bit of a quiz, but I'm going to give you the answers because <laughs> we don't have time. Number one was renal function. Number two, full blood count. And third was LFTs. And then equal fourth was lipids and thyroid function tests. And thyroid function tests account for 2,424 tests per 10,000 person. So that's about one in every four people on average have a test for thyroid function. Obviously, some people having more than one in a year. But then you get in this problem that what happens with TFDs, thyroid function tests, is they go up, they go down. And I've seen this variability and you get in this discussion. And the more times they see the GP, the more likely to go, well, you're feeling a bit tired. Maybe you should try the treatment. And I find this incredibly useful evidence to just go, actually, until you get to the threshold here of 20, and I don't even know how to say, what is, what's MIU? <laughs> Dosh per liter is the TSH at that level is actually shouldn't treat people. And I think the evidence says there's going to be no benefit. And we've got to take an approach that says, be clearer with patients. There isn't a magic bullet. And this evidence is very helpful to, to let us know. And t unless you are asymptomatic or above 20, don't use the treatment. Easy. Helen, what did I'm sorry, you I went into a bit of rant mode there as well. And this I? was my one to rant about. <laughs> you stole the thunder. By myself being But, but the other thing is, think clearly, because once you've tested somebody once, you're on that testing journey for life, and they'll come back and, mm, should I ever get in six months a year? Still but a I do tired. think that's quite an interesting point, Carl, because the testing here might be quite complicated because you've got a load of non-specific symptoms, haven't you, that might trigger this kind of testing, yeah. um, like weight gain or fatigue. And even perhaps if you're investigating people for other conditions, for low mood or yeah, yeah. for cognitive problems, in some other areas of medicine, there's, I, I guess, been a push to make sure that you're not missing overt, clinical, clinically relevant thyroid mm -hmm. um, disease. So it, to me... And I thought I thought about this a bit editing the piece. It was hard to kind of support a message not to test to some extent because of. Um, yeah, but that's why we're now in a crisis or workload workforce problems yeah. is you just end up this vicious cycle. Once you've made the decision to do the first test, you're in for life. Do you think now that this is 
you've got a strong recommendation that this treatment is not worth starting, that that might revisit what you think about doing that testing and perhaps what the, the profession should as well? I think we have to take a new approach to disease variability because I think what you were describing about all of these symptoms, they wax and wane, they come and go, and we have little understanding of the progression or the variability. Mm. And once you decide to intervene, you've lost all that. Mm. And so we should be start with the basic premise of do no harm, and in doing that, if we're not clear we're going to derive benefit and we have a clear understanding of that, I don't think we should be starting these treatments. And But we need a debate about this amongst the profession to try and say, how do we go about this different approach to medicine? Great. Well, so that's a strong recommendation then to stop starting treatment um, for subclinical hypothyroidism. Carl, you've bought another very commonly prescribed drug that uh, you think is might have an issue and it might be something to stop using. Um, and that's for sleep aid. Can you tell us about that? I think, Carl, you need to take a deep breath and just make sure you don't start ranting already. <laughs> I'm going to have a sleep. <laughs> Find a yeah. calm place. Uh, I mean, uh, this is interesting. FDA issues black box warning on common insomnia drugs. I think the principle of the black box warning is is interesting in its own right. We don't tend to have that type of process here in the UK. Well, what is a black box warning? Well, what it is, it's their strongest warning that mm-hmm. goes on the side of the drug boxes. And remember, in America, many drugs are direct to consumers, so people can buy them directly. Mm-hmm. So I think it's basically when you have this principle, it's a bit like what we do with cigarette packets. On the side of the of, of the is a big warning that says, this may seriously harm you. Mm-hmm. And they brought this report out because the FDA has reports of 46 serious injuries from causes as various as accidental overdoses, falls, burns, near drowning, exposures. And the reason being is this is all the Z drugs. And the thing about the Z drugs is they're there for insomnia and for sleep disturbance. But what interests me is we have a huge use of these drugs in the UK. I mean, 400, I went on open prescribing, 450,000 prescriptions per month, 5,191,028 last year. They're supposed to be only used for very short term because they develop tolerance very quickly within two to four weeks. But again, we've got huge numbers of people on these drugs. And I, I have a, a feeling that it's just inertia. They just, oh, yeah, carry on using them and stay on them for a long time. And I think, again, I'm coming back to this approach. If we had a big black box warning on that, as a patient looked out and said, this causes serious problems, it could lead to death. I think a lot of patients might go, do you know what, I might not come for that next prescription. And I think we should start to think about these warnings and how we might put them on the prescriptions in the UK and Mm. maybe in other countries. And And this is quite an interesting one, I think, as well, because the... As you say, they, they're only uh, suggested for short-term problems and the evidence base to support their efficacy is pretty thin. So it seems like a, a double whammy of the fact that it doesn't. it's a drug that doesn't work very well and now it's got a warning on it really indicating that it's harmful. Yeah, and I think the harm is most of these drugs have uh, worsened daytime performance. 
And so they have an effect into the daytime. And that's where you get these things like falls, near drowning, exposure type issues that happen in the daytime because these effects are transcended into the day and making mm. people have all these sorts of issues. Mm. Also, at night time, complex sleep behaviours is how they've talked about this. Things What's like that a euphemism for? <laughs> well, in this case, according to the story, turning on ovens and driving cars, presumably whilst one is asleep. That's you see, I, my, my perception is uh, with sleep problems, at some point, everybody is going to have sleep problems. And if you've got young children, you definitely have them. But as you get older, it becomes a problem. You don't need as much sleep. And so it's another variable process. So the definition of the insomnia has to contain, and it's very subjective, but you have to be affecting your daytime performance, I think, at least to consider using treatments, apart from maybe one or two, because you're in a crisis. And so... When you think about that, you think differently about when people come to talk to you. It's much more discussion about, well, look, these treatments only work very short term. And actually, you're better off with all the sleep hygiene measures. Okay, yeah, acute crisis is different. But actually trying to get away from a medication approach to insomnia, I think, is significant. And I think we could make big inroads on these 450,000 prescriptions per month and reduce that and have some processes to really think about this. Mm. So channeling Christian from earlier, what would we do instead? You're saying sleep hygiene. But... Mm. And just as someone who's not a GP and hasn't ever prescribed anything, when you, if you were to write a script for this, mm-hmm. would you be given, you know, these kind of warnings? Would you be aware of that... Uh, this kind of concern is related to the drug? Well, within the medicine, if you take out the information sheet, there'll be a information sheet mm. at the bottom where it'll tell all the warnings, mm. but most people don't read that. No. And, and I think if you read it for any drug, it looks petrifying. Yeah. I mean, almost yeah. all of them, it yeah. seems to me, when you look at them, <laughs> you might die if you take this. So but I don't think it's part of people's routine mm. conversation, is it, to mm. highlight these adverse events. You might highlight that there isn't very good evidence for their use certainly in the long term and I think pragmatically you would say you might be drowsy the next day but so my understanding of black box warning is to put it right in your face this is yeah. what this causes beware yeah. it's like the hazard and the skull and crossbones you get on toxic chemicals you don't want that buried away down the back end of some information leaflet mm. you want it right in front as soon as you get the packet and uh, the EMA doesn't have a uh, anything equivalent you know, that's European Medicine Agency. Yeah, I'd have to go away and look that up because I'm not quite sure actually, and I think it's an interesting issue. And I know who to... we could. I know who we could call. Who should we call? We could call uh, Patricia McGettigan, who is one of our uh, clinical pharmacologists who advises on our therapeutic series, and I know she also does some work for the EMA. And if there isn't one, I want to know why there isn't one, because it seems a very sensible idea to me for when there are serious consequences that you want the public to be aware of. I'm Patricia McGettigan. I'm a clinical pharmacologist uh, based at um, Barts and the London School of Medicine and Dentistry uh, and I worked both clinically and uh, as a teacher and as a researcher. In relation to black box warnings which are issued by the FDA, these have been around since the 2000s approximately, uh, following a period when the FDA went through a long evaluation of its drug labelling and decided to have the black box warning. 
in, in particular cases where there were real concerns about uh, medicine safety. So, for example, there's been the recent warnings around the Z drugs, so Zopiclone, Zopidem, and so on. In Europe and the UK, the equivalent, or the nearest equivalent really, is the, the Black Triangle. And that's been around in the UK for quite many years, um, uh, established through the, the yellow card, the MH3 uh, yellow card warning system. And in the UK, you would see that black triangle um, associated with drugs whereby there had been some recent safety update, um, some concern about it. And you would see the black triangle in um, the BNF You'd see it in the nurse prescriber's formulary. You'd see it in MIMS or in the electronic uh, medicines compendium. If there was advertising material, you'd also see the black triangle. So there are links and uh, between uh, the EMA and the FDA. So they pay each pays attention to what the other does. So it, it uh, a consideration by PRAC might arise on foot of a publication or an alert from from the FDA, and that will be considered by the the pharmacovigilance committee. They already have um, like quite quite a list of cautions around them in relation to the to the to the um, problems about uh, behaviours and and um, accidents and so on that that uh, drove the FDA warning. So they already have have that listed in the the, the precautions and and so on in terms of using them, but then as to whether the the, the, on the European side, there's a, a feeling uh, based on evidence uh, of harm arising to people. Do, do we need to strengthen those warnings? And that will be considered by the committee. And, and indeed, it might, if, if there was enough uh, information and evidence, it might indeed trigger an Article 31 oh. uh, procedure. So for alerting uh, practitioners and patients uh, and any stakeholder in relation to a black triangle warning, uh, the, the um, Medicines Regulatory Authority, so the MHRA in the UK, would issue uh, letters, alerts, they have safety newsletters, they may write individually to the, the prescribers and so on. And, um, the patient information, well, patient information leaflets are, are, are usually done retrospectively. so. There isn't, there isn't a direct contact mechanism with the patients, but prescribers who would be prescribing those for patients are alerted that they, that they may need to review their patients that are on these medicines. Can I come as close as I'm going to to my rant? You can do. When you suggested this, uh, this piece, we thought of Carl and uh, wondered whether we'd need to get him some, I don't know, calming whale music or something <laughs> before we started, just to... Well, when uh, I suggested, we should discuss Yeah, exactly. Uh, you're here to tell us about Jeff Drazen, who is the soon-to-be former editor of the NEJM, and he's... What's the NEJM? I think you should say that. The New England Journal of Medicine. And he's written about a dozen papers which he thinks over his tenure at the journal have had the biggest impact. Well, I saw this. In fact, one of my fellow editors forwarded it to me. And I thought, how intriguing, because here you have a major medical journal, someone that's been an editor for, for nearly 20 years. And I was just fascinated to read what he would consider the highlight pieces of 20 years in publishing to be. And that he, he sends out this um, table of contents with 12 trials. Uh, so things like... Um, a trial of peanut consumption in infants at risk of peanut allergy is the first one. Let me tell you what's not in there. 
any systematic systematic reviews. This New England Journal Medicine, if you're listening, Jeffrey Jason, there should be systematic reviews in there. And you picked out peanuts. Let me explain why. Here's the conclusion of the peanut trial. The early introduction of peanuts significantly decreased the frequency of the development of peanut allergy among children at high risk for this allergy and modulated immune responses. You have to read slower, Carl. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, immune responses to peanuts. It's basically saying give peanuts. Systematic review on peanut allergy, published in The Lancet in April. Conclusion. In patients with peanut allergy, high certainty evidence shows that available peanut oral immunotherapy regimens considerably increase allergic and anaphylactic reactions. Therefore, so the, done uh, deal. Jeffrey, you should have been publishing systematic reviews all <laughs> along, and we need to change the, the structure of the NEJM. That was right, I'm now leaving the room. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I mean, there's a serious point there. That yeah. These, like, they're very compelling when you read that, um, yeah. those pieces. They're, they're sort of compelling stories. You, you feel like, yeah, these are things that, that are important. But when you then contextualise them into what else we know, it uh, tells a different story. There's a big sort of sense out there that, you know, doing... Uh, evidence synthesis, systematic reviews is not real research, that the real research happens at the primary source data, the trials, that's where it all happens. But I think, look, we're in a different era now, and some of the editorials here do a good job because they set them in the context of the systematic reviews. And so it, in his dozen, he's basically got the the paper and then the editorial that went with it, so that's what you yeah, mean, some of them the narrative them out, around it. and some don't. But I think what he's trying to do is pick some out. But I think as soon as I read the first one, I'm like, I don't, I don't understand this because it's, it, it's, it is a randomised trial, but without picking it in the context, he should have been picking the systematic review as his favourite paper and considering that. And I think it's because this journal particularly does not publish systematic reviews. And the reason for that is I don't understand why. Because is that they, true, an actual, an actual editorial line? Or just, well, just the, an observation that... To the best of my to... knowledge, they do not publish systematic reviews because if I go on and try and look for one, but somebody out there might find one. I apologise if I'm wrong. <laughs> I don't got, publish very many, uh, at least. Yeah, well, I'm going to go and check. Um, <laughs> but I believe, and that's the position, you see, this is, should have been updated in the light of the systematic review. There are a significant number of trial, trials, 12 in this area and it's a basic principle of this is one of the most influential journals in the world it's got the highest impact factor score of any journal in medicine and it has a huge influence on practice therefore it should publish the research that's most likely to provide the truth nearer to the truth and reduce uncertainty and that is systematic reviews not randomized trials well we've got our patient campaign and and the way we do say rapid rex is very sort of patient focused and if you look at some of the uh the things in here they just didn't seem to be focused around mm. you know like patient important outcomes at all there's a paper about radical prostatectomy for uh, um prostate cancer and uh you know saying that this is very effective but actually you know, all-cause mortality doesn't go down and obviously your chances of uh, impotence and mm. incontinence are increased and things, and that didn't seem to be taken into yeah, account. Yeah, I, I guess the thing that it didn't do for me was give me a sense of, of what Drazen's wisdom is. I mean, you must know an awful lot about evidence, having sat in that position and been sent, as he all said, some, all, all the top papers. And 
what for me was missing from it was the kind of narration of why did he pick this one? What really stood out about it? And how did it sort of shape his journey as a as an editor or as a, a researcher or as a clinician what, what did it sort of mean for the world yeah, we've um, we've run a, a session at, at the conference um which we host with with oxford at um, evidence live now renamed ebm live and the session that i've always most enjoyed chairing is the one where we ask people to tell us about the papers that have shaped their career in evidence-based medicine and the stories I think have always been the most interesting bit. Mm. Uh, so I was I was disappointed not to learn more about Jeffrey Drazen before and reading this. In that, Carl, was your I presume you've done that session? Was yours a systematic review of oh, the best paper that changed my? Um, you did do my first session, I think, Carl. I chaired it, so I didn't. <laughs> no, you I, didn't. Did I not chair it? I did. <laughs> I didn't do a paper though. I just watched and listened. Oh, did you? Yeah, I thought yeah, you took yeah. part. No, I didn't take part. Well, next time, have to get no, involved. Uh, I didn't take part. I listened. It was a great session, actually. In fact, we published a piece in BMJ EBM, paced by David Noonan, which was the best ten papers in uh, EBM. And actually got huge uh, old metrics and huge yeah. views because I think there is something. So I don't mind people putting out their 10 best papers. What you have to say is their viewpoint. Of course. It's not necessarily the best 10 papers. And people complained about our list of 10. But I think <laughs> there's something about in certain areas saying, here's what I would read if I was new to the area. And that's what we put out saying. And so it was a combination of editorials, research and different aspects that went in there and I think that's helpful in areas if and I think I'd like to see more of these series like in you know 10 best papers in public health what might they be and I think it's really neat maybe mm. we should do this on, on this podcast maybe we should get someone to to bring a classic every yeah. now and then that would be a, that's a nice idea that's the rant of the week we'll give Carl a second to compose himself and coping with that kind of stress that that caused you, Carl. No, that's all right. It sounds like you're worried about me now. <laughs> well, yeah, it makes me wonder like how you, you cope with that. And that kind of segues nicely into uh, the last paper that we're going to talk about. Yeah, today. well, Elizabeth Mahays in BMJ News put this, stress doctors are more likely to binge drink and have sleep problems, find study. It was based on a BMJ open survey. And they found that 34% of 392 doctors uh, make themselves feel better by using substances, drugs, drugs, food and alcohol. One in 10 doctors report problems with sleep. We're back to our sleep, including insomnia. Two thirds said that they thought about work when they went to bed. And 35% said sleep problems interfered with their daily functioning. And what this made me concerned about was... Uh, that the doctors, and there seems to be a significant number of doctors, are stressed, are anxious, are taking their work home, and are, in some cases, uh, using substances to help them with this. And I think this is a real problem in medicine because, you know, I've been doing it now for 20 years, uh, still work as an urgent care doctor, and I think everybody recognises there's a case when you go, particularly at the front line, mm, I don't quite know what I'm doing here or I'm really uncertain, or I've made some decisions and I'm not sure whether that was the right thing to do. And when I started in medicine, there was a much more supportive environment, I felt, in healthcare for you making decisions. And yeah, okay, things weren't quite right or wrong. People were there to support you. And it feels like now the current regime is overbearing, 
over monitoring what you do, ready to point out when you make an error. And I see a lot of people concerned about litigation and somebody looking over the shoulder. And I think we need an approach to medicine that starts when we're in. We should all be a bit gentler and nicer to each other. Second is uh, we should start to get rid of things like all of this appraisal and all of this online learning I have to do and start to ask me <laughs> how I'm feeling and how I'm getting on and go towards that. And third, think about our environments. Uh, we've had on this program about doctors' messes previously. I find hospital environments very uh, un unsatisfactory when it comes to well-being, yet people spend an awful lot of time there on the job. And so I just think we need a fundamental root and branch approach to doctor well-being. That's uh, quite a call. The thing that I thought when you brought this was like, Carl Hennigan is bringing a survey <laughs> to talk about evidence. That's, that surprised me. Yeah, so, you know, um, we do survey. I've done surveys. The question is, you know, is what people will say is based on this evidence, is the evidence correct? Is it, is it, can you get, dig down to it and say the quality of evidence means the result's correct? Well, look, Are 46% it, yeah, of doctors That's stressed not what matters here. Is the number right is not ma what matters. What matters is a significant number of doctors are reporting problems, and that should be taken seriously. And I suspect if you repeated it, yeah, it will go slightly up and down. But in this survey, a, a huge number are reporting pro problems. 44% of doctors binge drank. 5% met the criteria for alcohol dependence. 24 to 29% experienced negative emotions after overeating, and 8% had a binge eating disorder. I mean, that's mm. significant mm. numbers that we need to take take seriously. It will change from area to area, but we don't need to worry sometimes about, you know, is this research, should it be done in a higher quality way or X? Sometimes you can say, this is the evidence we have to hand. How do we use it to affect the current situation? Well, there's quite a bit in the introduction, isn't there, that suggests that this isn't the only survey that's been done mm -hmm. and many of the results are pointing in the same direction. And I agree with Carl, it doesn't much matter if it's 25% or 15% or... 50% that fit, that fit the bill for whatever the the symptom or the condition is. Um, what I want to know is who's responsible for doctors' well-being because it says that doctors, mentors, supervisors and peers and occupational health support services should recognise and act on the prevalence of the problems. I totally agree. But who is responsible for taking the the lead on this i agree we as doctors can be i think we should all be gentle and nicer to each other from within and i think we can do that but at the moment there's a lot of bashing going on and there's nobody saying i'm going to take some responsibility for how we've got in this situation most businesses would be like alarmed at this because they'd be going this is affecting production affecting the quality of what we do and we need something different to happen um, people like Claire Gerarda have wrote about this within the workforce and particularly in the mental health issues mm. have tried to provide some support services. But this is hugely important to protecting the integrity and quality of the workforce and something's got to change. Uh, so you don't need an RCT to work out that there's a problem, but maybe do you need some more evidence about you know what's actually an effective way of dealing with this because you don't want people binge eating or drinking or taking drugs or so anything. interestingly if you follow the link from bmj open i think that this um, particular survey is linked to a trial or, or baseline data from a trial looking at whether an induction program for doctors improves 
levels of occupational distress, which were the things that Carl mentioned, um, and organisational well-being. The only thing I can say, though, is it's very therapeutic to have a rant every now and again. <laughs> Everyone should have a podcast. And you need, you need a couple of friends who actually listen to you and allow you to, to rant you. about what's going on. Hugely helpful. Just a, a couple of thousand of friends out there listening <laughs> to your rant. Great. Well, thanks again for listening to our rant uh, and us talk about evidence. If, for some reason, you haven't subscribed so far, get on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, including now, you'll be glad to know, Spotify. I finally got us on Spotify. Subscribe so you don't miss out on our next one. Uh, And uh, as Christian, our GP, did at the beginning, please do get in touch with us to let us know what you think of what we're saying, if you agree with us, if you disagree, if you want to rant back at Carl, uh, he's here ready to take that. So go on to bmj.com slash podcast where you can find the details of how to get in touch. But until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening. I'm Carl Hennigan. Thank you. And Helen McDonald, thank you. Bye.